The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. And uh, this is uh, Critiquing Evangelical Arguments for Same-Sex Relationships. And I'm Brian Borgman, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father, we come to you this afternoon, and Lord, we thank you for the time that you've given us here. We thank you for the good instruction, helpful instruction from your word. And Father, we pray that you would help us in this hour. We commit this time to you. Lord, these are, these are difficult things to talk about. They are difficult things to try to wrap our minds around, and we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I want to go through the uh, preliminary considerations as quickly as possible. Uh, This this really is not my my favorite kind of uh, session or workshop to do. I'd rather take a passage of Scripture or you know, take a biblical theme, this is, this is a critique, and so as a critique, uh, it is uh, by necessity in part negative, uh, and it's also dealing with something that I profoundly disagree with, um, and so I'm going to try, try to remain as objective as possible, but um, some of these things are, are real challenges. And so, as we all understand, uh, the, the whole culture and context of same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage, same-sex attraction, uh, there, are, there are obviously multiple layers to these things. Uh, you know, you have social, uh, political, moral, I mean, you have all these different layers. But what we're going to do in our session today is just focus on simply one aspect of this issue, and that is on the so-called evangelical arguments for same-sex relationships. That is, we're going to look at how those who would identify as evangelicals argue or advocate supposedly biblically for same-sex Relationships. We're not going to uh, deal primarily with um, uh, how to deal compassionately with those who are struggling with these things. We're not going to um, really talk about uh, the idea of orientation or even the idea of, quote, uh, celibate gay Christians. These issues and many more that are related are very very important, and uh, we, we really do need to at least acknowledge that the church has not typically done a good job of ministering to those struggling with same-sex attraction, but our focus is going to be uh, a more of an apologetic nature. And so the question is, who in the world is making uh, evangelical arguments? And you have to understand, I, it would get a little tiresome for me to go evangelical every time I say the word evangelical, all right? Um, and so I'm just going to forego that. But who's making the evangelical arguments for same-sex relationships? Well, in order to understand the, the background, we have to understand that there were uh, really two primary 
pioneers, neither of whom were probably evangelical. One was D. Sherwin Bailey, who wrote a book in 1975 called Homosexuality and the, and the Western Christian Tradition. That particular book, and then probably more importantly, followed up by John Boswell, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality in 1980. These were academic books written by academics for the academic community, really. They had some influence on scholars. Uh, There were refutations that were written on their scholarship, But the significance of those books is that they ended up laying um, important groundwork for later evangelical advocates. In other words, there would be uh, people a couple decades later who would end up picking up these arguments that were laid down and giving them, in a sense, sort of an evangelical twist. Probably the most uh, dangerous is the uh, popular level books. Uh, Nobody reads academic books except academics. Um, So the the real danger is, I just hold it up. Um, By the way, if you're going to buy this, don't buy it new, buy it used. That way the author doesn't get royalties. Uh, God and the Gay Christian by Matthew Vines. How many of you are familiar with with Vines' book? This book, um, the subtitle, The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships, ironically, published in 2014 by Convergent Books, which was a subsidiary of um, Waterfront, which is a subsidiary of Multnomah Books. I think they've since parted ways. But this book by Matthew Vines really more than any other book that, that, that I'm aware of, has made um, a, a pretty big impact on uh, evangelicals. Uh, w- one of the things that is uh, persuasive about the book is the fact that Vines writes in a very warm way. He speaks, uh, he speaks very much our language He was raised in the Bible Belt. He was raised in a conservative uh, evangelical church. Um, In other words, he he knows the language. He speaks the language. He he, um, acknowledges the authority of the Bible and so forth. And what he does is he sympathetically tells his journey of coming to grips with his own same-sex attraction. And, of course, there is, there is something that is very disarming about hearing somebody's struggles and, and journey and, uh, in fact, sometimes very, very bad ideas can be communicated very personally, very warmly, and very persuasively through the vehicle of a story, a personal story. Now, let me just tell you what the nature of his arguments are, and we're going to focus mostly on his book. What you'll find, though, is if, as, as you go through the literature, the arguments actually don't change that much. They typically are regurgitated from author to author, uh, and so in dealing with Vines, you end up dealing with um, a number of other uh, arguments as well. And really all Vines does is regurgitate what Bailey and um, Boswell had said a couple, few decades earlier. First of all, he says, absolutely, I believe in the authority of the Bible. The Bible is the inspired and infallible word of God. He says that right at the beginning, pages 2 and 3. 
What's important to understand about Vine's work is that he is not arguing for, quote, gay Christian celibacy. In fact, he dedicates an entire chapter to the idea that to identify people with same-sex attraction and then tell them that the only option for them is a celibate life is absolutely unjust. In fact, what he's arguing for is validation, in fact, affirmation of same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. And so how does he go about this? Uh, What he says is that the the Bible, it's sort of confusing what he says at times, frankly, but the Bible actually would affirm committed, monogamous, um, mutual uh, same-sex relationships. And so how does he go about arguing for this? Well, first of all, he argues, strangely enough, that the biblical writers actually didn't understand anything about biblical or or, uh, homosexual orientation, same-sex orientation. Um, In fact, he makes a a great uh, point ad nauseum that the ancient world did not understand the concept of sexual orientation. And so, the real sin, whenever the Bible speaks, for instance, negatively about homosexuality, is the the real sin is that a man is reduced to the role of a woman, which culturally was incredibly shameful and degrading. And so, virtually all same-sex behavior that Vine sees as criticized or condemned is either a man acting like a woman or a woman acting like a man, or pederasty, that is men having sex with boys, or some form of sexual exploitation. So everything that the Bible condemns about homosexuality is, is in a sense, reduced to these, um, uh, really these awful type perspectives, so that at the end of the day, since the Bible didn't know anything about sexual orientation, the Bible's not condemning sexual orientation. The Bible's not condemning loving, uh, equal status, homosexual relationships. The Bible is condemning these other things which really were were bad. Um, But then he has to argue as a pragmatist. Um, Vines actually is ultimately a pragmatist. He he draws uh, incredibly naive parallels to slavery and the anti-Christian or the Christian anti-slavery movement, Galileo and a heliocentric view of the universe. And so, just when as the church was confronted with the facts that slavery was bad and they had to change their mind about slavery, and just as the church was confronted with the fact that the Earth was not the center of the universe, and they had to change their views so now that we are incredibly enlightened and now really only over the last 50 to 75 years understand sexual orientation, this new evidence uh, is going to compel the church to change its views. And in fact, one of his most pragmatic arguments is actually seen in the fact that he says that the traditional views of homosexuality regarding the Bible 
have had destructive consequences. This is, these are his words. The destructive consequences of long-held views of Christians warrant a reinterpretation of Scripture. Now, what you're going to find is, if you actually do end up reading his book, is that you're going to find that Romans 1 has hurt homosexuals' feelings over the years. Okay? And, of course, hurting people's feelings or uh, making them feel oppressed or ostracized is very unchristian. And so the, the traditional interpretations of the passages regarding homosexuality have ended up bearing the bad fruit of alienating homosexual people. And so on the basis of that, it just warrants a reinterpretation. Uh, In fact, he makes the comment, he says, Christians made remarkable shifts in their understanding regarding Gentile slaves and the place of the earth in relation to the sun. And as we are about to see, the new information we have about sexual orientation actually requires, in italics, requires us to interpret scripture no matter what stance we take on same-sex relationships. Then what he does is he then deals with Genesis 19, Leviticus in the Holiness Code, Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013. Then he deals with Romans 1, 26 and 27. And then he combines uh, Paul's use of two words from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 10, 1, 10. Now, um, there is a lot to actually uh, critique about vines. Um, let me just throw out a few things, and you can see them for yourself if you if you wish to. First of all, his historical methodology is is incredibly defective. You know, you can try to prove a lot of things by selectively choosing historical quotes and selectively choosing historical perspectives. All right, and uh, he really does. Uh, use history in a very, very defective way. Uh, His use of history, by the way, is oftentimes confusing because he'll throw a quote out, uh, maybe from a church father, for instance, and you know that that church father addressed homosexuality in other places, and yet he chooses a place where homosexuality is mentioned in the text. The church father's quoting that text, doesn't mention anything about uh, homosexuality, and therefore, see, the church father didn't actually even talk about sex when he was dealing with this passage. It's that kind of thing. The, the historical quotations actually end up betraying a highly deficient historiography. Ironically, Vines covers his bases by claiming, I'm not a scholar. Let me just tell you that when somebody starts out their book by telling you that they're not a scholar and then attempts to be a scholar, there is usually very little success. Now, my main focus, my main interest is on how he handles the Bible. Um, His interpretive method, his exegetical method. But understand this, as Vines deals with these passages, in a sense, he always has his trump card. That sounds wrong nowadays. Um, (laughs) He always has his ace up his sleeve, and that is this. Um the traditional view of homosexuality hurts people's lives. That he, he, he can always fall back 
on that, and we'll see how he does it from time to time. So why in the world should we deal with this in terms of a a biblical counseling conference? Um, Well, I would just tell you that with the rise of popular-level arguments and the increasing pervasiveness of LBGT and whatever other letters they add on to now, with the increase of these as social issues ever before us, especially, you know, uh, we live in Nevada, and um, which means that we thankfully don't live in California. But um, th- these things are like ever in front of us, right, For, uh, on a weekly basis. And so what's going to happen is in an increasing way, evangelicals are going to be exposed to these arguments, and I will tell you that I, I believe that we, we need to be better prepared. Who knows the name Bart Ehrman? Misquoting Jesus, right? Bart Ehrman writes a popular level book. And what does he do? He talks about things that New Testament scholars have known for 2,000 years. Puts it in a popular level uh, 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 media, and then what ends up happening? People end up thinking, oh, I can't trust the Bible anymore. The Bible doesn't believe in the Trinity because 1 John 5 7 is. And, and so all of a sudden, a guy takes arguments that New Testament scholars have known and answered for years, puts it in a popular level book, and ends up destroying the faith of a multitude of people. Well, we, we cannot actually afford to be ignorant of the way that advocates for same-sex relationships deal with the biblical texts. We need to understand these. And I would, I would suggest to you that we will, either we have or will, counsel people who are, first of all, confused and are trying to navigate their way through their own struggles, and then they're going to be dealing with the added confusion of these interpretations. And so we, we really owe it to the people that we're going to serve to kind of help them uh, understand what the Bible really does say and why what they've heard or read is incorrect. Now, we're also going to end up counseling people who are familiar with these things and have already been utterly persuaded by them. In fact, uh, my wife was recently talking with somebody and I'm preaching through Genesis, and um, my wife mentioned to this person, you know, Brian is going to be in Genesis 19 pretty soon, which is, of course, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this person said angrily, vehemently, Sodom and Gomorrah has nothing to do with homosexuality. Nothing. And I will tell you, there are people that are absolutely convinced that that is true. And so this really does come down to an apologetic issue within the context of, of counseling. And so whether we're dealing with people that are confused and dealing with added confusion because of this or that people have already made up their mind, we can no longer assume in a counseling context that we have a shared perspective on what the Bible says about homosexuality, right? Now, unfortunately, I have to be very, very selective here. Um, Kevin DeYoung has provided a, a very terrific brief treatment of these texts. 
for a very uh, excellent scholarly treatment, uh, Robert Gagnon, um, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, is probably the most unanswerable academic scholarly defense of the traditional interpretations of the, of the passages. Now, before we dig in, I'm, I'm going to rearrange things just a little bit, but there's one thing that you have to understand from the beginning when you're dealing with vines or other advocates, and that is vines all but ignores Genesis 1 and 2 as he deals with these texts. And as James Hamilton from Southern Seminary says, that is like ignoring gravity when investigating a plane crash. There is is a fundamental, universal, pervasive assumption, and that is that Genesis 1 and 2 provides the foundation and the framework for the way that we understand what human beings are man as male and female. It is the framework in which we understand the way in which male and female complements or completes each other. It is foundational for the way that we understand um, uh, biblical uh, sexuality, human sexuality within the biblical context. And to uh, all but ignore that is uh, is, is actually just in- incredible uh, probably intentional neglect. What do you do with God made them male and female? Well, we're going to deal with Romans 1 first, just because if I run out of time, um, quite honestly, Sodom and Gomorrah is less important than Romans chapter 1. And so I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. This really is one of the one of the great texts dealing with with human depravity, and of course, Paul is giving us a perspective on the fallenness of mankind, and that in the context of pagan Gentiles, religious moral Gentiles, and Jews. His conclusion, of course, in chapter 3, is that all are under sin, right? No matter who you are in this world, you're all under sin. And so in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, he says, um, speaking about, uh, in a sense, um, natural revelation and then the way in which pagan Gentiles have ended up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Now, now, some commentators say that what's going on in, in Romans 1 is the way that, that pagans or Gentile pagans have become idolaters of the creation and idolaters, sexual idolaters that manifest itself in homosexuality. What seems to be two things, I would actually argue, are, is really the same thing. To worship the creation is, uh, in essence, um, going to be heart idolatry that manifests itself in all kinds of rebellion against God, of which Paul seems to think that homosexuality is the crowning display. Now, verses 26 and 27, of course, are the 
key verses. These are the verses that have hurt lots of people's feelings. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Notice that word, degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Literally, that which is against nature. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, Vine says, pages 95-96, he says, For countless lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people, Romans is the book that has driven them away from their faith and torn them from their homes and families. It's the book that sent so many down a path of despair. Now, think about how contrary that is to what you have historically heard about the book of Romans and the way in which it's brought hope and peace to untold millions, right? Now, Vines, as he deals with this, on the one hand, Vines is going to say, okay, Romans 1, as far as homosexuality goes, is the most significant passage in the debate. But then he turns around and he says, now you have to understand, though, that that this passage is really not central to Paul's message in Romans at all. Now, what he does is, is pretty fascinating. I think it's a little sleight of hand. Is he deals first of all with what he identifies as a compelling argument, but an argument that he is at the end of the day not in complete agreement with, and that's the argument of of Boswell. Boswell read Romans one like this. What Paul is really doing, what Paul is really condemning is straight people acting like gay people. Okay? That is the act which is indecent and against nature. Now, I I would suggest to you, you could read the Bible 20,000 times and never come up with the idea that what Paul's talking about is straight people acting like gay people. All right? Now, Vines actually says this argument has so much to commend it to us, but really at the end of the day, we can't embrace the totality of it. But ironically, by the time you finish Vines' treatment of Romans 1, his argument ends up sounding very much like Boswell's argument. And so, pragmatist as he is, he says what you have to really understand about Romans 1 is that what Paul is describing is, quote, fundamentally different from what we are discussing. Okay? So here's here's his argument in a nutshell. First of all, Paul is addressing people who are capable of making the opposite virtuous choice. Okay? So, So track with me. Paul is dealing with pagans who had the ability to make the opposite virtuous choice of what they chose. And of course, he says, page 103, gay people cannot choose to follow opposite sex attractions. So how do you know that Romans 1 has nothing to do with what we're talking about in terms of same-sex relationships? It's because Paul was talking to people who could have chose differently, and of course we know gay people can't choose differently. The second thing he says is that what Paul's really condemning in Romans chapter 1 
is, is excess passion. Now, this, this is actually the most interesting part of the way that he deals with Romans 1. He says, the appetite for sex in moderation was heterosexual behavior in the ancient world. But in excess, it led to same-sex desires and behaviors. And so Paul, quote, this is a quote, Paul wasn't condemning the expression of a same-sex orientation as opposed to the expression of an opposite-sex orientation. He was condemning excess as opposed to moderation. You have to understand the way that he's handling the scripture at this point. Paul's not dealing with the fact that men were burning in their passions for men and women for women, which, of course, I think is exactly what Paul says. What he was really doing is he was condemning um, excess as opposed to moderation. Uh, in fact, there are some of the, some of the quotations that are absolutely astonishing to me. He says, while that principle, excess, remains true today, the specific example Paul drew from his culture doesn't carry the same resonance for us. That isn't because Paul was wrong. Aren't you glad? He wasn't addressing what we think of today as homosexuality. The context in which Paul discussed same-sex relationships differs so much from our own that it cannot even be reasonably called the same issue. Same-sex behavior condemned as excess doesn't translate to homosexuality condemned as an orientation. The third part of his argument is he he has to deal with what Paul calls against nature. Because Paul says men with men and women with women is against nature. And... uh, So Vine says that that Paul sees um, this kind of uh, excess homosexual behavior as unnatural, not because it's against nature, but fundamentally because it was against the pervasive cultural view that the passive person in male homosexuality was acting like a woman Women were held in low esteem and status. And so since the passive male partner was taking the unnatural role of the woman, and then in lesbian relationships, the dominant female partner was taking the male role, that's what makes it unnatural. This happens when people are looking for sexual thrills beyond their heterosexual relations. And in a real sense, what Vines ends up arguing is natural comes down to what's natural for me. That, by the way, goes back to Boswell's argument. Straight people acting like gay people. That's unnatural. Straight people acting like straight people is natural. Gay people acting like gay people is natural. But straight people acting like gay people is very unnatural. So, uh, Paul condemns things that are unnatural. And he puts, uh, Vines puts it in terms of lustful same-sex relations, which would include pederasty, the oppression of slaves, sexual oppression of slaves, and um, the sexual exploitation of others for the sake of 
uh, uh, sex. And so Paul is actually not even applying, he's not even talking about loving, committed relationships of gay Christians today. Why? Because he didn't really know about that. Such relationships, Vines would say, does not violate the created order because they're not lustful. Now, here's, here's what Vines does, and then we'll talk about why, why he's twisting the scriptures at this point. First of all, Vines sets up Romans 1 as if Paul is speaking from an incredibly narrow Greco-Roman cultural background. He does the same thing in his treatment of 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. He gives mere passing lip service to the idea of a creation background and argues that really what Paul's doing is arguing from a Greco-Roman background and a very, very narrow one at that. The reality is, is if you read Romans chapter 1, Paul is treating the entire subject from an Old Testament background, in particular a creation theology and the Mosaic holiness code. And I, you can read Gagnon on this. He's, he, there are incredible parallels between Septuagint version of Genesis 1 and 2 and the language that Paul uses in Romans 1. And so, if, if, if we embrace his explanation of natural function for that which is unnatural, um, we're embracing a reconstruction that Paul would have never, ever even recognized. John Piper says... He says, the sexual disordering of the human race, especially homosexuality, but not only homosexuality, is a judgment of God for our exchanging the truth of God for a lie. The reason Paul focuses on homosexuality in these verses is because it is the most vivid dramatization in life of the profoundest connection between the disordering of heart worship and the disordering of our sexual lives. And so, as Paul deals with God's judgment and the escalation of God giving people over to their sinful desires. It is in that context that Paul speaks of same-sex relationships, homosexual relationships. I would also just point out to you, if you still have your Bible open, if you notice, in verse 26... Paul says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Now, if you back up, the reason for that, or the explanation, goes back to verse 24. God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Okay, so that's what Paul says in verse 24. In a sense, it's a very broad, sweeping kind of of indictment. But when you get to verse 26, verse 26 is a further explanation of what it meant for God to give them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity. And so Paul identifies, what, what does he identify as degrading passions? Females, which by the way is the, is, is the lesser used word for female that is in fact used in Genesis 1 in the Septuagint. Females exchange the natural function, Paul's talking about sexual intimacy with males, for that which is against nature. So very straightforwardly, Paul actually sees same-sex relationships. He's not talking about exploitation. He's not talking about dominance. He's not talking about any of these things. He's simply talking about relationships, sexual relationships that exist with men and men and women and women. And he says, these are 
against nature. And so male or female homosexuality is against nature in that it is opposed to God's created design from the beginning. Now, uh, Paul goes on, and, and this is just, um, just a little further explanation. He says, likewise also, he's still talking about degrading passions, verse 27, men leaving the natural function of the female, that is intimacy with female, became inflamed in their desires for one another. Now, you have to understand, what, what Vines is going to do is he's going to say, look at that language, inflamed in their desires for one another. What he is describing is excess, lustful passions. And that's what Paul's condemning here. But, of course, he defines it in terms of pederasty or exploitation. And yet, what could you point out about verse 27? Is that their desires are for one another. Paul's actually explaining a mutual same-sex relationships. Not exploitive, not oppressive, but that which is mutual. And so this isn't pederasty, it isn't oppression, it is same-sex relations. And in fact, the very language that Paul uses, inflamed in their desires for one another, is simply another way of saying that that they burned with lust. I'd point out one other thing that's vitally important for us in our discussions that we have today. I would point out that not only is this a result, um, the behavior, the acts, a result of idolatrous rebellion against God, but I would also point out that the desires are the result of idolatrous rebellion against God. In other words, what, and we have to be clear on this because what Paul is condemning is not merely homosexual behavior, homosexual acts. What he is condemning is the very idea that men would burn with passion for men and women with women. Okay? Now, how you deal with that in counseling is vital, incredibly important, um, because there are going to be people, because we live in a fallen world, that struggle with same-sex attraction. And the best thing that we can do is not just simply tell them that that's condemned, but we can help bring the Word of God to bear on how to deal with those desires. But that really is outside our, our scope. Quick yes? Uh, I don't know if it strengthens the argument. I heard a person arguing in Romans 1 along the lines you're arguing that, but I don't know if the Greek text would be that when in verse 26 and 27, the definite article of God is before natural relations. So they're saying because the definite article is before natural relations, it argues for this is the created natural relation. There's God's created order. Okay. The use of the definite article there actually strengthens the argument. Yeah, I don't know that you can hang all of that on the article, but I would certainly say that's that's Paul's argument, is that this is the created order, right? Um, and the article may well strengthen that, but I, I don't want to uh, overuse the article. 
Okay, so let's let's deal with the. Um, uh, I won't have time to get to Sodom and Gomorrah. I think maybe I'll just say a few things about it real fast. Of course, what passage comes to your mind when you think about the gravity of homosexual sin? Well, First Corinthians six nine through eleven, right? Those who practice such things, what? will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul uses two words here. New American Standard translates it, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals. All right? Now, 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul's talking about that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, etc., and it, the law is actually for the rebellious, the lawless, murderers, immoral men, and homosexuals. All right? So Paul uses two terms. And what's interesting, the first term for effeminate, that the NAS does effeminate, malakoi, uh, actually just in some context just means soft or smooth. All right? Um, some of our translations, like the ESV, NIV actually take both of those words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and actually just put them together as just men who practice homosexuality. Okay? I think that's actually a mistake because Paul uses the two different words and he uses them uh, obviously intentionally. All right? So you've got malakoi, which the New English translation, passive homosexual partners, keep that in mind, new RSV, Tragically, male prostitutes. Okay? Now, the other word, uh, arsenakoitai, is used in both 1 Corinthians 6 9 and 1 Timothy 1 10. New English translation, practicing homosexual, uh, homosexuals, new RSV, sodomites. Okay? Now, what Vines does here is absolutely, utterly confusing if you're, if you're used to reading biblical studies because he argues that, that Malakoi meant, you know, so many hundred years before the New Testament, a man that was self-indulgent and enslaved to his passions. And the reason he was called Malakoi is because that's how women were viewed, as a self-indulgent and enslaved to their passions. All right, and, and then he says, what this word really does is it encompasses an entire disposition towards immoderation, which, of course, was a woman-like quality, according to him, in the first century. But then he ends up saying, at the end of the day, the word is ambiguous, and we don't really know what it means. Well, ironically, the authoritative lexicon, Bedag, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, who, by the way, the, this, is, the, this is not a, like a conservative, evangelical, reformed lexicon, all right? They don't have a, an axe to grind one way or the other. They say about this word, pertaining to being passive in the same-sex relationship Effeminate, especially if catamites, catamites were men and boys who were sodomized by other males in such a relationship. This word is the opposite of arsenakoites. Okay? These are the two words Paul uses then. Then, 
the lexicon says, male prostitutes, as in the new RSV, is far too narrow a rendering, and yet sexual pervert is too broad. Then Paul, or then um, the other word, arsenokoitai, here's what's interesting. That word does not appear in any Greek literature, biblical or non-biblical, before the time of Paul. Now, what's interesting about that is um, one of my uh, former Greek teachers at Western Seminary, James B. DeYoung, has actually aptly demonstrated in numerous journal articles that the word arsenikoitai is actually a compound word that Paul either coined himself or was in use in Hellenistic Jewish circles at the time of Paul and is a combination of the rendering of the Septuagint in Leviticus 20.13 where it says a man shall not lie with another man as he lies with a woman. Well, man and lie are the two parts of the word that come together and you could very literally translate it a man better, B-E-D-D-E-R, or a man who has relations with another man and we would call that a homosexual. Now, Vines actually says... You know what, it may actually be that it comes, that the word comes from Leviticus 20.13, but even if it does, we still don't know what it means. Can I just tell you that this is a really bad argument? To just appeal to that we're not really sure what this word means when lexicographers and linguists have actually demonstrate what the word means is just simply, in in a sense, um, he can't concede this point, in a sense, and maintain his argument. And so Vine says, now, here's the thing, is we really don't know what the word ultimately means. He argues that if it means anything, it's men who have sex with boys, But he says, but what the word is absolutely not applicable to is to a loving, committed gay relationship. It's probably related to economic exploitation by sexual means or pederasty. And yet, Bauerart and Gingrich say, Paul's strictures against same-sex activity cannot satisfactorily be explained on the basis of alleged temple prostitution, male prostitution, or limited contact with boys for homoerotic service. The fact is is that at this point, Vines is completely stuck. He has no argument, so at the end of the day, the argument is, well, this just simply doesn't apply. This is what he goes back to over and over. This obviously doesn't apply to what we know today as sexual orientation and same-sex relationships. Which I would just, I would just urge you actually to think about that claim. Think about the claim that, that the first century didn't know anything about same-sex attraction and relationships. Think think about the argument for a minute. In a sense, he may end up proving too much, right? Okay, let me give a few conclusions and then point out one thing from um, Sodom and Gomorrah. So first, Vines 
arguments are always connected back to see the bad fruit, the bad consequences from thinking like this, thinking that this is what the Bible means. Okay? Well, Denny Burke says that Vines at this point, he's got the, the tail wagging the dog. All right? Because opposing homosexuality is obviously harmful to homosexuals, therefore the texts must be reinterpreted. Second criticism, Vines all but ignores the very starting point of the Bible itself, Genesis 1 and 2, which is the fundamental framework for both Old and New Testaments. Just as sure as you need to assume gravity when investigating a plane crash, you need to assume Genesis 1 and 2 every time the Bible talks about male, female, sexuality, human nature. Third, Vine sets up narrow interpretive grids based on deficient views of history and historical documents. And so he's got this narrow little grid, and then what he does is he takes all of the biblical texts and then squeezes them through that grid so that they mean what he says they mean. By the way, you could prove anything by doing that. You narrow enough definitions, you squeezed a grid tight enough, you could actually run any biblical text through it and make it say what you want it to say. It is actually a fundamental example of question begging. Vines continually assumes the truth of his own conclusions in all of his premises. Therefore, he says actually at the beginning, he tips his hand, he says really the only thing on this issue is for the church to accept it. There's no more reason for dialogue. There's no more reason for discussion. Really, the church has no more grounds of opposing homosexuality than it does uh, for arguing for an earth-centered universe. Well, what are those assumptions? Again, the biblical-slash-ancient world didn't understand orientation. Thus, none of the passages deal with orientation. How convenient. The biblical ancient world looked at homosexuality as sex beyond heteros- excess beyond heterosexual sex. Therefore, they didn't see or know about loving, committed, same-sex relationships. Therefore, none of the passages deal with mutually loving, same-sex relationships. I want to just point out that for somebody who claims to believe the authority of the Bible, this, these assumptions actually seriously challenge the sufficiency of the Bible. See, we're not saying whether or not the Bible mentions computers. Okay? We're not talking about whether the the, the Bible uh, acknowledges space stations. What what he's arguing is, is that the Bible actually does not speak authoritatively to the essential issues of gender and sexuality and sin and the human heart. And we would say that is exactly what the Bible addresses. There is such a fundamental uh, 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 denial of the sufficiency of Scripture to address these issues. And so in order to uh, accept Vine's arguments, one must assume a narrow worldview of the ancient world. Okay? Um, and one must assume that the Bible uncritically adopts that view, i.e. low status of women, for instance, I would say to you that such a uh, historical understanding is naive as if there was some sort of monolithic um, moral code that everybody in the ancient world adhered to. It reminds me of um, those that advocate what's called the new perspective on Paul where they define what uh, Second Temple Judaism believed as if there was no uh, variations or differences of opinion. Everybody must have believed it was just like this. 
that's what Vines ends up doing. Everybody had to believe that it was just like this. And the fact is, is it wasn't. Vine's assumptions here don't take into account that the Bible does, in fact, deal with attraction, desire, and behavior. What would qualify as same-sex attraction or orientation? The desire and the behavior both prohibited, and to argue that the first century knew nothing about adult-adult equal status homosexual relationships is absolutely absurd. And yet this is Vine's crux argument, which he repeats. And so I would just say that this leads him to revisionist views of clear texts of Scripture so that he and others like him are so agenda-driven that they twist the Scriptures and lead many, many astray. And so how how do we apply these things? Well, it's not all that easy. I would say first, when dealing with confused and struggling people, that patient, loving instruction is absolutely necessary, 2 Timothy 2, 24, etc. These people that are struggling need to actually see God's truth in a, in a loving, kind, winsome way. And so at this point, I'm not talking about how to help people um, talk about strategies to combat the struggle. All I'm talking about is just helping them to see the texts for what they really say. And, and I would remind us that there is, is absolute power in God's truth. And sometimes when the Spirit of God opens a person's eyes and they, and they just simply see the clarity of God's truth, there is liberation. And, and, and here's what we have to our advantage, and that is the texts are actually straightforward. Now, when dealing with somebody who's convinced... They're typically convinced because of pragmatism and uncritical dogmatism. Okay? Um, they're dealing with what we could call a pragmatic love hermeneutic. Okay? God is love. God is loving. How in the world could God ever condemn a loving relationship, no matter who it's between. Have you ever heard this? Something like it, right? And so what they do is they, they take, first of all, their own definition of love. Love without moral boundaries, love without truth boundaries, just their own amorphous, sentimental, sloppy, agape view of love. And they say this is, this is, this is God's highest ethic, is that, is that people love and they're loving. Now, you have to understand that probably one of the best things we can do is with, if you're dealing with somebody, if they're open, which is, I'm just going to say, highly unlikely, get them to look at the contexts with you. Get them to look at the entire passages with you. When, um, when they want to talk about um, uh, Romans 1, get them to look at the details of Romans 1. And I would argue that these these are incredibly important issues, biblically, socially, and politically. But we actually have to understand that we cannot concede on these issues if we take the Bible seriously for two interrelated reasons. One, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
I want to say that the Bible unambiguously expresses the truth that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're not debating election and free will. We're debating somebody's eternal state. The other reason that we dare not concede is because of what Paul says at the beginning or, or at the end of that chapter or then in the end of that section. And that relates to the very power of the gospel itself. And such were some of you. If we give up on this issue, even if, even if our, uh, our, our states begin to uh, legislate uh, uh, against uh, what they call reparative Uh, therapy and things like that. Don't try to talk somebody out of being a homosexual. It's against the law. We have to understand that the minute we concede on this, not only are we conceding their eternal welfare, but we're also conceding the very power of the gospel itself, which does in fact have the power to transform people's lives. And the fact is, is that just as sure as for the thief and the adulterer, the gospel is the only hope for the homosexual. And I would say that even in the face of jail time, we don't concede. Even for the sake of being loving and compassionate, if somebody's got terminal cancer sitting in front of you, the loving thing to do is not to say, you're okay. The loving thing to do is to say, you've got cancer. We need to start radiation right now. It's going to be painful. It's going to make you sick. You're going to hate it. But it is for your good. It's your only hope. And so, brothers and sisters, I would, just, I would urge you, be familiar with these things. Understand where people may be coming from so that you are able to give an answer to the objections. And may God help us. If you want to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll talk about that with you after we close in prayer. Father, we we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that we don't have to bring our own interpretation and insert it in your word in order to know what it says. We thank you for the clarity of truth. And Father, we pray that as biblical counselors, you would give us compassion on those that are struggling. We pray that you would give us courage to speak truth in love. And Father, we pray that that you, by your sovereign hand, would actually mitigate the influence of those who would twist the scriptures on such important issues. We pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to always be faithful and to say what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.